0: Welcome to Pound the Rock, the Score's NBA podcast. My name is Joseph Cacharo, and I am joined on this Black Friday south of the border, unofficial Black Friday north of the border, because uh, we've at least adopted the sales in Canada, by co-host Joe Wolfon. What's going on, Cash? Not much. I know Wolfon explicitly told me, we're not going to tell the viewers that we're thankful for anything. We are not American. <laughs> And so I'm not gonna ask him what he's thankful for. I'll I'll mention that I'm a little thankful for the uh, Chris Paul versus Scott Foster feud continuing continuing to be the gift that keeps on giving unless you're a fan of Chris Paul, the team he plays for, etc. Other than that, we'll find what are we gonna talk about today? Some rebuilding teams? I think so. That's uh we you know we had some interesting off-air
1: discussions about just where some of these teams are at on their trajectories. And the start of that or or how we kind of initiated this exercise was by picking out the teams that we actually thought could be defined as being rebuilders i know on this show oftentimes we get into semantics and there's a lot of subjectivity in terms of the definitions that we use for certain things and uh, this was another instance of that where you know we just decided between us on seven teams that we thought constituted Rebuilders. And um, the conversation between you and me started because you had, I guess, written... Was it a video initially or...?
0: You talking about the Pistons piece?
1: The Pistons piece, yeah. Yeah, so
0: I've got an unfiltered episode coming out today, depending on when people listen to this. It might already be out on the Scores YouTube page, but also wrote about them for an in-app feature this week. Obviously, the in-app feature is always a little more detailed, have more space for words. But yes, I was covering the Pistons in general this week. So
1: in the course of writing that piece and that that video script, you had hit me with some pretty dispiriting numbers (laughs) about the Pistons and their rebuild and how it has not progressed at all. In spite of, you know, one of our first episodes of the season, maybe even our first episode of the season, we picked them out as a team... Not necessarily that had impressed us overall, but you spotlighted Jalen Durin, who's been injured, which is part of the struggles that they've had since then. But we spotlighted them as a team that had shown us something. And what I said was, you know, it's been a long time in the wilderness. This rebuild has been ongoing for four-ish years. And finally, we're starting to see the fruits of that. And they haven't won a game since then. <laughs> So why, why don't you tell the listeners about the numbers that you uncovered in the course of writing that piece that you've already relayed to me?
0: Okay, so first of all, you mentioned them not winning a game since we talked about Jalen Duran and the generally promising signs from that opening week 2-1 and start. They've lost 12 in a row. This is their third losing streak of 11-plus games over their last 40 contests dating back to February. In a 40 game span, they've had three 11 plus game losing streaks. They are four and 36 in that time. Detroit's football team, the Lions, who lost on Thanksgiving, but are off to a great start nonetheless. The Lions have more wins in the calendar year 2023 than the Pistons do, despite playing 45 less games, and the most dispiriting numbers when it comes to the pistons and the one i know you were referring to is that i had brought to your attention that the pistons over what like look i get that we have you know 67 games to go here i think we can pretty safely say their playoff drought is going to reach 5 years this season okay and so you can pretty fairly now compare them to the process era 76ers who went five years without making the playoffs. I know it feels like the Sixers were bad for a really long time, but it it was five years, which is a long time, but maybe not as long as people remember. Anyway, the Pistons have a worse record in this five-year drought than the 76ers did during the process. During that woebegone half decade that much ink was spilled over, you know, about how what they were doing was detrimental to the league, how they weren't even trying to win, how it was a slap in the face to the integrity of the league, to the competitiveness of the league, to the very nature of what sports are supposed to be. Remember, the, the NBA intervened. Thank you. And I put
1: to this- To in. install- Correct. Basically, to install Brian Colangelo. They to, intervened, Or Jerry, Jerry Colangelo. Yeah.
0: yeah. They <laughs> intervened, and, and I put this in the, in the in-app the feature. When the league and the rival owners, who were so upset at the fact that the Sixers, they was basically a 29-team NBA league with the Sixers being this like ugly stepsister that you, they couldn't sell tickets against and all this, when the rival owners reportedly urged Adam Silver to do something and eventually put Jerry Colangelo in there to oversee Sam Hinkey and company, the Sixers were in year three of that process and they were one in 20. So it was their fourth season of not making the playoffs, but it was their third year of being like really bad where they had three straight years of like 20 or less wins. The one year they had 10 wins. But anyway, they were one in 20 at the time in the fourth year of being a non-playoff team in the third year of being really, really bad. But here's the catch. Joel Embiid had not played a single game yet. Ben Simmons had not even been drafted yet. Once Joel Embiid started playing, which was the fifth and last season of their playoff drought, they went twenty-four and fifty, or sorry, twenty-eight and 54, 24 and fifty-eight. I can't remember now exactly which, but they went thirteen and eighteen with Joel Embiid in the lineup, like a more respectable-looking team. And you know, it, maybe you could be like, "Wow, he already had a lot of help." Not really. Go back and look at that team Joel Embiid first debuted on. We're not talking about the team that made the playoffs the next year with Ben Simmons there, and then they got J.J. Redick. No, like Robert Covington might have been the second best player on that team. Joel Embiid went thirteen and eighteen with that, otherwise lost fifty-plus games. The point I'm trying to make is that even at the worst point of that wretched Sixers era, you could still point to the facts like, yeah, but like the guys that they've done all this for haven't even played yet. And that's why they're still so bad. And once that guy started playing, it was very obvious, okay, things are going to turn around here. And yeah, you know, it's his first year. He's coming off some injuries. He's not ready to right away lead them to glory. But look at the difference when he's in the lineup. They're at least somewhat respectable and competitive. The issue when it comes to the Pistons for me and I don't want to make this like a whole Cade thing because I've got words for the organization as a whole. But the issue for me is that Cade Cunningham does not look like that type of floor racer. And I don't just mean he's not Joel Embiid. I get it. it like comparing him to literally the reigning MVP is unfair. He doesn't have to be that good. Few people are, ever will be. But 90 plus games into his, into his career, even with all the injuries... In there, and I get like you know, the environment around him isn't the greatest. I get it. I'd still say that when they drafted Cade Cunningham, whether you're talking about the Pistons front office, whether you're talking about Pistons fans, when they won that lottery in 2021 and it felt like hope was restored, if you had asked them whether it's in season two or three of his career, by the time he's like 90 plus games into his career, do you at least think Cade Cunningham will be the type of floor raiser that makes this team competitive? As I wrote in the piece, and as I wrote about, like for example, Tyrese Halliburton the week before in being this kind of star, at the very least, I think the Pistons thought they were drafting the type of star who gives you the luxury of being able to figure out the rest of the equation later. And I don't think Cade Cunningham has proven capable of being that guy yet. And again, I realize it's early. I realize it's not the you know most conducive winning environment around him, but at some point, man. You got to show signs of being able to lift your team out of NBA poverty. Cade Cunningham has not. He's averaging like 21 points and seven assists, but the efficiency is, forget down, it's like the efficiency is at its worst it's been in his career. The turnover rate is at the worst it's been in his career, and there's some spacing issues there that we can get into that for sure contribute to that, like uh, Bojan Bogdanovic being out, and even Joe Harris uh, only playing a few games. The absence of jail endurance vertical spacing the last few games. Well, he's been out. All of that contributes to it. I get it. It's a cramped floor. It's it's a tough environment for Cade. But watch like one Pistons quarter, and you'll see at least one unforced Cade turnover that has nothing to do with a cramped floor. Like he's not the problem but the fact that he hasn't been able to mitigate some of their other problems or like lift that floor up like i'm talking about i think is a real concern for them and then before i toss the mic over to you i'll just say too that like i think what they're learning here is that it's almost impossible to adequately develop this many prospects at once like Troy Weaver, former Thunder executive, got this job in 2020, inherited the number seven pick in that draft, which they used on Killian Hayes. But then between their own, obviously, on-court incompetence and a bunch of draft, uh, sorry, and a bunch of trades, they've now gotten to a point where they entered this season with eight players, not even just on their roster, in their rotation, eight players in their rotation who were selected in the first round of the last four drafts. It's really hard to develop all those guys at once. Then, okay, they traded Sadiq Bay who is a pretty productive youngster, who I think is like perfectly suited to being a role player on good teams. They traded him to take a flyer on James Wiseman a year after they took a flyer on Marvin Bagley. And now both those guys are in the same front court as Durin and Isaiah Stewart. Hayes, who hasn't really shown much yet, was kind of blocking Ivy's minutes and development somewhat. And both those guys are sharing a backcourt with Marcus Sasser, the rookie you know, sharpshooter that they just drafted. And Sasser for some reason was getting less minutes than like Kevin Knox up until a week ago. Like it's hard to develop all these guys, man. And it's one thing to balance long-term development with short-term success if you're also trying to win in the present, but like that's not the case here. They're a catastrophe on the court. Meanwhile, These young players, like some of them are just getting lost in the shuffle. Trade values are deteriorating. Their own careers are like stagnating. It's all around a shit show. And again, and then at the center of it all is the guy, the crown jewel of this rebuild, who, quite frankly, has not shown the ability to uplift this team and franchise. Okay, so let me give the kind of rosier
1: view of this. For one thing, this is basically Cave's second season. Right? Like last year was a complete write-off for him. Mm-hmm. He obviously still has a lot of growing to do, and the environment is not ideally suited to that, especially with Boion and Monty Morris and Joe Harris not able to play. Like you mentioned it's hard to develop this many guys at once. You see, like we're going to talk about Houston, right? We've seen how beneficial bringing in some vets to provide some structure and stability and like professionalize that team, how much that's helped not just the team as a whole this year, but like helped some of the young guys with their development. And I think that's something the Pistons haven't had the benefit of this year because a lot of the veterans that they were supposed to be relying on just haven't played. I also think their record makes it look a little bit worse than it's actually been. They've been competitive in a lot of those losses. I think for the most part, their defense Hasn't been that bad. It's really been on the offensive side that they've run into problems. One encouraging sign for me, they finally made the starting lineup change. Killian Hayes went to the bench. Jaden Ivey is starting now. The first game they did that didn't go well. They gave up 140 plus to one of the worst offenses in the league in Toronto. But their, their next game against Denver, they were super competitive. And Jokic got ejected from that game, but he got ejected like halfway through and the game was tied when he did. I thought they played quite well. And I thought Ivy looked really good in the starting lineup in that game. And to me, I really think it's going to be beneficial for K to be playing off the ball a little bit more. And when he's playing off the ball next to Ivy, somebody who can actually create some real downhill pressure and collapse the defense, that to me, in spite of whatever questions you might have at the defensive end, and that's fair, that offensively just makes a lot more sense as a backcourt fit. And also, if you're talking about developmental priorities, I think Ivy should be higher on the pecking order than Killian Hayes, who now in his 100%. what is it, his fourth season has, you know, yes, shown some some offensive growth, but considering where he was starting yeah. <laughs> offensively, I mean he had a long way to go just to get to a point where it was like not embarrassing and I know, still, we, I, don't, yeah,
0: I know the Pistons aren't the only team who passed on him, so I, I don't want to make it just about them, but you know, Killian Hayes was drafted five slots ahead of Tyrese Halliburton.
1: Yeah, like you said, a, a lot of teams, I'm yeah. sure, are having some regrets yeah. about passing on him. I mean, the Suns drafted Jalen Smith a spot ahead of Tyrese Halliburton. At least Killian Hayes is still a Piston. Like The, the Suns didn't even pick up the third-year option on the guy they drafted <laughs> ahead of current MVP candidate. Yeah. So, And in the case of Jalen Smith, at least he still gets to play with Tyrese Halliburton. Yeah. <laughs> um, look, th- there there have been some mitigating circumstances. Uh, you know, Durin, who we talked about on this show already, looked really good before he got injured. And I-, I think Ivy has been very solid. I mean, I know there are going to be those defensive question marks with him. And I'm also probably a little bit biased because really, really fast guards I just have an affinity for that type of player and maybe I am blinded a little bit by my love for that player type but you know that is the reason that De'Aaron Fox has been one of my favorite players since he entered the league and why Tyrese Maxey has been one of my favorite players since he entered the league and why I'm still keeping a candle burning for Kyra Lewis but I think on top of that there have been a lot of encouraging signs with Ivy in terms of Him making better passing reads, especially like interior passing reads. I thought in that Nuggets game, he made some really slick interior passes, and that's something that he's going to have to get a lot better at, especially on this version of the team where there isn't a ton of spacing and like you're going to have to find little passing pockets. I'm curious and interested to see more of what he and Kade look like in a backcourt together. And... Asar Thompson is, like, straight up one of the best defensive players that I've watched this season. Rookie, veteran, whatever. Like, unbelievable defensive tools, defensive instincts. And, yes, the the offensive game, very rough around the edges. The shooting, I don't know where that's going to settle in. And that is going to be a huge swing skill for him, without a doubt. But, like, you're seeing some real passing chops, some ability to do some things off of the dribble, where if he develops a jump shot that garners any kind of respect whatsoever. That's just going to open up a whole host of other avenues for his development. And even if he doesn't, you know, a couple years down the road, if the Pistons manage to create a more spacious offensive environment, or Cade gets to a point where, you know, he's drawing two to the ball on every pick and roll. You can imagine Assar in kind of like a Draymond Green type of role. And that is a potentially big win in terms of, uh, you know, the lottery talent that they've accumulated. So I, I don't think it's quite as dire as, you know, the record and all of the, the futility over the last five years makes it seem right now. But to your point, if Cade is kind of just a pretty good player and not like a franchise pole and like perennial like forget all nba but like a perennial all-star if he's not that guy then i don't know how much all the sort of like fringier development stories really matter and that's the thing and like i i don't want to focus too much on like the true shooting and the lack of efficiency like i think that can be situation dependent and also i, I just don't think it always tells the, the whole story but i do think if you watch him he struggles to create really good shots for himself. Yeah. And I think that's the the problem I would point to right now. Like the turnovers are what they are. I think he forces some stuff and that does have to do with the lack of spacing he's playing in. But I think also, even in light of that, he should be able with his physical attributes at his position to create better shots for himself. And frankly, to finish better at the, like this guy is shooting 51% yeah. at the rim. And we're talking about someone who's like, you know what? Six six. six.
0: He's in the eleventh percentile among wings. Finish six up six two
1: twenty. Yeah. As a whether you want to call him a point guard, a
0: combo guard, yeah. whatever. Even even among wings, which is what cleaning the glass uh, has him to find at eleventh percentile, finishing at the rim. Yeah. And doesn't deal and, with double teams well either. And I know, like, the argument there could be: look, a lot, a lot of young ball handlers don't deal with double teams well and turn the ball over, especially with a lack of spacing around them. But I would also argue that given Cade's background, given his size at 6'6", and the fact that part of the allure with him was supposed to be that like he's this big offensive hub, almost like a point forward type guy who's come up playing this way, having the ball in his hands at that size, being able to see over the defense, having that advantage... I just, I'm sorry, I'm not buying that excuse as much as I would with most youngsters. And I'm not saying that he has to be perfect, but he should be dealing with double teams better than this. Uh, Yeah, I mean,
1: (laughs) (laughs) I don't know where I stand on that. He's, again, this is basically his second season. So I think that's something, just watching him and getting a sense for like how he reads the game. I don't think that's going to be an issue for him long-term. It's more a question to me of like, Okay, so the the Pistons are playing two bigs together a lot of the time. If Bojan is healthy, then because you actually have a big wing who you can slide up to the four, are we seeing that less often? I do think they could stand to play Asar at the four more often. Mm -hmm. I mean, and that's where maybe the Sadiq Bey trade is one that they might want to have back. Not that I I think Sadiq Bey has a chance to be a solid role player, but I don't know that his ceiling is any higher than that. I don't think... You know, they have to lose too much sleep over that trade. But just situationally, it might be nice to have another one of those big wings that you can play at power forward right now. So you don't have to go to the double big look as often as they're going to it currently. And, you know, I don't know. I I guess another question I have is like, which of those bigs is actually part of the long-term plans? Like, is Isaiah Stewart part of the long-term plans? I I think we know Duren's going to be. I don't think Wiseman's going to be. Like, he just hasn't... Unfortunately, he just hasn't uh, developed his feel really at all. Like defensively, he's always just like caught in between in drop coverage, like not really committing to the ball, not really committing to the roller, giving up both things. Like, yeah, it's tough. Um, Bagley, man, unpopular opinion. I think Bagley has been pretty good this year. I don't know if that means anything for where he fits long term. Obviously, you know, like you're not going to be playing him and Duran together, but maybe if he's like your backup center, that's perfectly fine. But yeah, I don't know where Stewart fits into that. I just uh, they they've obviously like loaded up on all these young big men projects, and I don't know how all of that shakes out. But I do think there is kind of like a foundation of young talent here that, like it did early this season could start to look a lot different and a lot better in not too much time.
0: Yeah, and as I said, actually, in the unfiltered video for YouTube, like, don't get it twisted. Like, this isn't, like, Bulls-level depressing, you know, where it's, like, this team going nowhere, stuck in the middle, but, you know, with, like, no upside. Like, there's upside here. I don't want to discount that. And it's something I wrote as well. That's like, yeah, like, Thompson is, like, light years ahead of the average rookie defensively. Light years. Durin looked great to start the season, and I have a lot of faith in him. I'm I'm with you. I'm a big believer in Jaden Ivey. Sasser can definitely shoot. Like, there's upside here, but as I wrote, and as you mentioned a few minutes ago, that's all fine and dandy, but if Cade Cunningham isn't the, say, whatever term you want to use, superstar, perennial, all-star, whatever, if he isn't that level of player, the player that they envisioned him to be when they won the lottery, if he's not that guy... Those other four guys I mentioned, some of the other upside here, it's just not enough to make what the last half decade has been worth it.
1: Yeah, I think the other thing when kind of comparing this to other rebuilds around the league is, so yeah, the Pistons are looking at having another top five pick in the upcoming draft, which by all accounts is a pretty weak one, but you never know. Another top five pick is nothing to sneeze at, no matter what the draft class looks like. But Again, comparing it to other rebuilds, they not only don't have any surplus first rounders, they're actually out a first rounder. And there's a chance that it won't convey, but I'm gonna I'm gonna read through the protections on this pick. So they owe this pick to the Knicks. It's protected one through 18 in 2024. So okay, they're keeping it. Protected one through 13 in 2025, probably keeping it then protected one through 11 in 2026 and one through nine in 2027. So like they're probably going to convey that pick. And if they don't, then
0: it's a things are really
1: dire, like way more dire than they look right now. If they actually haven't conveyed that pick at that time. So yeah, that's, that's another aspect of this is where like they, they have built up, I think a decent young talent base. They, don't have the pick outlay that some of these other teams have waiting for them in the future, whether that means we like to add to that talent base through the draft or to package in some kind of a trade.
0: Yeah. And that's what like just real quick before we move on here. That's why I think that their best course of action would be to consolidate some of the young talent. Like the guys that I just don't think they a have time for and b are going to be like big parts of the future consolidate something, maybe turn some of the old, those young guys into future picks and or some veteran know-how that can help the guys that I'm bigger believers in, whether it's Duran, Thompson, Ivy, Sasser, Kate. obviously like you keep those guys as your core, maybe turn some of these other young players that you don't have the time for into future picks and some veteran know-how and see what you have at that point. But like, you just can't keep going like this where like eight of your 10 or 11 players are rookies and sophomores and guys that are getting in each other's way. It's tough, man. It's it's tough, especially when one of those eight isn't that no brainer floor raiser. Um,
1: well, I think the only guy in the roster that they could realistically get a first for this season is Boyan. So, <laughs> yeah, they could do that, uh, but also for all the reasons that we've talked about, right. they might want to have him there.
0: I, um, I think, I but, think the NBA needs to. Uh... Give Jerry Colangelo a shot and see what he's up to. <laughs> Listen, at least when Sam Hinkie was undercut. Get Troy
1: Weaver out of there. Yeah.
0: At least when Sam Hinkie was undercut and, and they installed Jerry Colangelo above him, at least he was still literally trying to lose.
1: I mean, it is interesting. Like that, all the stuff you mentioned about how this has been actually, it's gone worse than it did for the process era Sixers, just in terms of win-loss record. But I guess the stated intent is what changes everything, right? Like if you come out and say, well, you're trying to win and you're just failing miserably at it, that's better than saying, actually, we're trying to lose and we're succeeding at that. <laughs> that's uh, the, the intent is what matters. And I, I understand why that, you know, elicited a different response. Like the distinction is real. Of course. Oh, I completely agree. Yeah. Um, we, we sort of went about this backwards because we were going to we were going to rank the the teams that we had decided were rebuilding right and yeah. uh we've only we've only talked about one team but the other six teams we had in this rebuilding category uh were the thunder the magic the spurs the jazz the rockets and the wizards so i i actually ranked those in terms of like i tried to wait where they're at now the actual players on the roster are currently Along with, you know, what is it going to look like down the road? And so I had the Pistons sixth out of seven with uh, only the Wizards coming in behind yeah, them. How about you?
0: That, yeah, that's exactly how I have it. The Wizards are in a league of their own. With The Wizards aren't an NBA team. They're a comedy act. <laughs> and Jordan Poole is the Joker doing the stand-up. Ringleader. The ringleader. You know, he's the Joker doing stand-up in the Joker. Like, it's not even good comedy. It's... You laugh it's at good, how it's en- good. It's good comedy. It's good Come comedy on. in that you're laughing at how embarrassing and cringe it is.
1: I think it's great comedy. Um, but yeah, I mean, like, it's like Bilal Koulibaly, I guess Denny Avdia, you know, Corey Kispert, maybe Daniel Gafford. Like, that's the extent of their young core right now. And in terms of what's coming down the pike, apart from, you know, a high pick in this year's draft, they got some sun swaps in the future that may or may not even come into effect. And then they have like a 2030 Warriors first rounder that's protected one through 20. So yeah, maybe they get something for Kuzma this year. Like that's the most sensible course
0: probably for them to take. Kuzma's cause... looked good. Like the last couple of weeks, especially he's uh, turned it up. I mean, again, it's not, it's not really going to show in the win loss column, but uh, I think he's been pretty good on the whole. And, you know, in the right environment can still be a really solid, like role player contributor to a good team. Yeah, his playmaking, I think, has come a long way. And I, I think his defense has really
1: fallen off in the last couple of years. But I would chalk that up to environment more than yeah. anything because his last couple of years with the Lakers, I feel like he was actually one of the more improved defenders in the league. So I, I think they could get something real for him and that would make a lot of sense for them to try and do. But I, I don't really want to talk too much about the Wizards. I don't have a ton to say about them apart from just that. They came in seventh for me and... Probably a distant seventh, honestly.
0: Yeah. Okay, so who, uh, let's stick uh I went really long on the piston, so it's still on you. Go who's who's number five? So I wound up going with the Rockets and I would have
1: had the jazz here instead if it hadn't been for the ridiculous pick outlay that they have coming their way in the future. Like yeah. I just I didn't want to wait that too heavily because I don't think it's as interesting to talk about. And I'd rather just compare the teams with where they're at right now. And obviously, the Rockets are well ahead of where the Jazz are at. But I, I just think, like, if you look at the, the first-round picks they have coming to them from both Minnesota and Cleveland, that nudged them ahead of Houston for me. So I had the Rockets fifth. I mean, they've they've been really impressive this year. Like They're seven and six. Their losses have been, for the most part, very competitive losses, apart from you know the opening night beatdown they took at the hands of the Magic. And we'll get to talking about the Magic. But I think, look, fourth in defense, I don't think they're actually quite that good defensively. Their uh, opponents are shooting 23% on corner threes this year. So like that's just one thing you can look at and be like, oh yeah, they're benefiting from some luck there. That's probably going to come down. But the big thing actually for me is they're first in the league in transition defense by like a thousand miles. And there are a couple of different ways that you can uh, look at that or like stats that you can look at to illustrate it. One of them is if you just look at NBA.com, fast break points allowed, the Rockets have allowed 6.8. So again, that's the fewest of any team in the league. Number two is the Sacramento Kings, and they've allowed 10.5. Wow. So almost a four-point gulf in fast break points allowed. And then if you look at cleaning the glass, and they have a stat called points plus, like basically points added through transition. So if you look at that on the defensive side, the Rockets have allowed opponents to add 0.1 points per 100 possessions per game in transition which is another way of saying basically they might, their opponents might as well just be playing in the half court all the time. There's like a negligible distinction there. That's how good they've been at transition defense. And maybe that's a situation where like there's some screwy tracking data going on there, but I think it mostly matches the eye test. Like they've been really good at getting back and that's just, that's just effort. Uh, Obviously, In terms of like the defensive pieces that they've acquired, that's made a huge difference. Dylan Brooks, Fred Van Vliet, really shoring them up at the point of attack. And then the guys that they already had in house, right? Like Jay Tate is a really, really solid and versatile wing defender. Jabari Smith came in kind of with the expectation that that's where he was going to really shine. I think it's starting to show that. And he to me has the. I don't know what he's going to be ultimately offensively, but I think the vision for him defensively is to fit into this kind of archetype that I talk about a lot, which is that of the portable rim protector. And I don't think he's going to be a rim protector on the level of a, you know, a Jaron Jackson or an Anthony Davis, but a guy who can protect the rim, but can also do it 30 feet from the basket. I don't think he's quite there yet, but I think he's showing the kind of lateral agility, you know, at his size to be able to be that type of player.
0: I'd also say he's made strides offensively too. Like, you know, he's far For from sure. finished product, obviously on that end, but like it looks way more fluid than it did a year ago when it's, you know, it, it looked kind of clunky and uncomfortable. You know, even, even just that has probably been helped by having, you know, the steadiness of a Fred Van Vliet. And yeah, there's no doubt this team is like already solid. I think in addition to the audition of Fred and, you know, dylan brooks right now looking like an all-world shooter in addition to being an all-league defender i also think there's like addition by subtraction here and obviously you know don't want to make light of the reason kevin porter jr is not with the team but i do genuinely from a basketball perspective that they are better because he's not there like i think there's a steadiness that comes not only from fred being there but also from kpj not being there
1: Yeah, I mean, that's undeniably true. And if you think about just the structure in their offense and how much more organized it looks, making that exchange is a huge part of that. And in terms of unlocking Shangun, and I don't think, you know, you necessarily needed a veteran point guard like Fred to fully unlock Shangun. Like, he's a ridiculous offensive talent, and he gets a lot of his offense kind of on his own, just out of post-ups. But I think the two-man game between those guys and the way that Fred has been able to sort of unlock him as a role man, as a short roller, like, I, I think that has been definitely very beneficial. And I think it's also, you know, I know Jalen Green hasn't looked great, but I do think in an off-ball role, like, he he is playing something kind of more akin to the role that is going to be best for him long-term. I think he's still sort of figuring out how to exist within that role and still make an impact offensively without kind of like drifting into the background. But I don't know. Yeah. All, all this just looks way further along than it did last season.
0: Yeah. I'd also say um, with respect to Shen Goon, like I think his deep, like I, he's not a good defender, but I think there's been strides made on that end. Like he was a terrible defensive mm-hmm. big early in his career. And, at least from like an eye test effort perspective, like how engaged he look, which look might just simply be that they're playing somewhat meaningful basketball now, but I've seen a difference on that end from him.
1: Yeah. And I think it's a really good indication and example. Like I'm not saying that he individually hasn't improved, but for big men, defensive insulation is so important. Like, having better defenders around you can make a monumental difference. And I, I think we're seeing that come to bear as well. And um, just to quickly go back to the Fred point about how that sort of changed the, the the look and structure of their offense. They were 29th last year in turnover rate, and this year they're fifth. And I know Fred can grate on people, be it fans or teammates, with – The way that he maybe dominates the ball sometimes but his methods are conducive to playing low turnover basketball like the raptors last year had the number one offensive turnover rate in the league just never turned it over and now you have a rockets team that was super loose with the ball last year taking care of it at the league's fifth best rate so A good example right there. And like when we're talking about the Pistons stuff too, right? Even somebody like Monty Morris, who is nowhere near Fred Van Van Vliet's level, but a great caretaker point guard who knows how to just like take care of the ball and kind of organize an offense that can make a big difference in terms of just like putting everyone and everything in its right place and maintaining some semblance of structure that can help uh, some of these younger guys find their place.
0: Yeah. No, Fred's given the Rockets everything that they wanted from him the only thing I'll say with the Rockets, and, I mean, you touched on Jalen Green already, is I, I'm just not a big Jalen Green believer, man. And, like, maybe it's okay, and, like, maybe him not being the guy that they originally thought he would be is okay because Shen Goon, I think, is going to be better than anyone would have expected coming into the league. But, yeah, I don't know. With respect to Green, like, I just don't see it and yeah it looks a little better with Fred there when he isn't dominating the ball and he doesn't look like as much of just like a glorified chucker but uh, I think the thing with Jalen Green for me is that like he's obviously this very like offensive first guard that you know the casual fan will tell you like has a bag and is like this has this skill set that's conducive to being this like great NBA scorer but no, no, man, you like watch the process and you look at the numbers and you're like, I feel like we have seen some glimpses so far. And it's, I know you mentioned like, you know, not wanting to get too caught up in efficiency with young players and stuff. And I get it. Young players, even ones that turn into really good scorers are often inefficient when they're young. But with Jalen Green, like the efficiency hasn't really improved at all year to year. If anything, it's dipped a bit. And the worrying thing for me is a guy for a guy who's supposed to be such a bucket getter his long range shooting and free throw shooting isn't like that encouraging. He hasn't shot over 34% from three yet in his career. He's at 33.3% this year. He hasn't had a year where he's shot 80% from the free throw line. Like, I just don't think there have been many signs yet that he is capable of being the scorer. Everyone just assumes that he is right. Or that his like reputation said he was supposed to be. And I, like a couple of weeks ago, when I made a similar comment on Twitter, I had someone reply being like, well, you could have said the same about Devin Booker early in his career. But I was like, not really. Like, sure, Devin Booker obviously wasn't what he is now early in his career. But Devin Booker was already like by year three, like a 38% three-point shooter. Like at the very least, you could be like, you know, you got to improve here, here and there, but the guy can flat out shoot. But Jalen Green, we can't even really say that. But that's not really what he is. Supposed to be like
1: he to me looks more like a slasher who's gonna live at the rim, and I don't think he's ever gonna be the shooter that Devin Booker is. Probably won't ever be the playmaker that Devin Booker right. is, although in the third year of Devin Booker's career, I wouldn't have told you that he was gonna become the playmaker he is now, so who knows? But that's why I think this role is like an off guard is way more conducive to success for Jalen Green, is because like him attacking advantages, slashing into gaps. You know, going off the catch and getting to the rim, like things like that are where he's going to find success, I think, rather than kind of dancing with the ball and getting to like pull-ups and things like that. So I think he's been a lot better defensively this year. Also, he's still only 21. Yeah. Uh, I wouldn't say I'm like the biggest Jalen Green guy. I'm not super high on him, but I think that he can still be a solid starting two for a while for this Houston team. And I'm not, I'm not completely giving up on him yet. But yeah, just because comparing them to Utah, who I I wound up like ranking ahead of them, it's just, even though the Rockets have these picks coming from Brooklyn for the Harden trade, because they were out all these picks beforehand for what they did during the Harden era, including most damagingly with the Rust trade, they basically come out pick neutral, except for a 2027 swap that they have from the Nets. Other than that, They're basically out their own picks in 2024 and 2026, and they're picking for Brooklyn instead, which I think ultimately is like a wash.
0: What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out The Score's fantasy football podcast with Justin Boone. And in case you haven't already, download The Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our featured content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. And don't forget to check out The Score's YouTube page for an informative, yet light-hearted dive into the sports world's trending topics. Now back to the show. Alright, well Fawn, the Jazz are number 4, right in the meaty middle of our 7-team rebuilding rankings. They have come crashing back to earth after their surprising start last year and overall surprisingly competitive season, um, the way they have played this year and, and the fact that they have not so surprisingly come crashing back to earth actually reminds me of a quote from a story last spring in a uh, an ESPN story. I can't remember who wrote the actual story, but the quote was was said to Jonathan Gavoni, their draft expert, and obviously you know the guy who started Draft Express. But anyway, from this story in the spring. On ESPN, it was a West talking about Wembenyama. By the way, it was a Western Conference executive said the following to ESPN draft expert Jonathan Gavoni. Honestly, I wish we wouldn't have won so many games this year. We're going to regret not taking every game to get this dude. I mean, I'd be willing to bet a lot of money on the fact that that was either Danny Ainge or one of his underlings who said that. Like, I'm very convinced there was a Utah Jazz front office person who said it. I mean, maybe someone would be like, "Well, it was Presty," but I, I think that the Thunder having already you know had Chet Holmgren in there, not that they wouldn't have taken Victor Waminyama, but I, I don't think they would have felt as strongly against the strides they made last season as like a team like Utah would have. So anyway, it, them cr- I mean, crashing back to earth this year reminded me of that quote. But uh, look, I still think they're an interesting team based on how their decisions could impact other teams and the playoff race and potentially the title race just because they're a team that, could very easily be a seller, like even for as good as Markinen is and was last year and for as competitive as they remain with and on the floor. And even as new as like the John Collins experiment is, are you really convinced that anyone on this roster other than Walker Kessler and Keontae George, I guess, are like solidified as part of their future plans? Because I'm not. And and if that's the case, then I think they are a team that are fascinating from a trade season scenario more than they are from what this team is right now when you're talking about projecting them forward because i think it's mostly kessler probably george and then everyone else for me is probably on the market and it's more so about like what they do with those picks in the coming years and how they build this thing out around kessler i just don't like what are they trading that's getting them back anything i listen i'm not saying they're trading things that are gonna get net them like a top five pick but I, like you get, I don't know what are they gonna Kelly Olynyk's an expiring deal? Like, do they just let him does let just let his contract expire and keep his veteran presence in the room for the year? I don't know. It's just like I don't know. I mean, if all they can get back for him
1: is like a second rounder or two, then yeah, maybe they hold on to him. Maybe they try to bring him back on a team friendly deal after this year. I don't. I don't know. I I just don't think they have anything all that great to trade. Like last year, they had Mike Conley yeah. to trade, and that that wound up getting them this uh this what, what was it, the 2027 lakers pick i think yeah. do they fl- top like, four I protected
0: do they flip collins like his trade value is not anything but like i don't know, like sexton i don't know like <laughs> so i think they'd be i yeah just having no actual knowledge about this but just
1: speculating i think they'd be willing to flip collins but again I, they're not getting a first rounder for him i just don't no. Even I, like, I was scratching my head a little bit when that trade went down, just being like, it was a straight salary dump. I can't believe the Hawks couldn't have gotten something more for him. But I thought about it, and I wound up writing a whole piece about just why the market for him completely collapsed. And it's because, in terms of what teams are looking for in modern power forwards, and right now Collins is playing center, and that's a big reason why the Jazz are dead last in defensive efficiency right now, it's because... He's shooting the three ball well actually this year. He's like, like 43% from deep, but he's doing it on low volume and defenses still don't really treat him as a shooter. His best skill honestly is like being a dive man and he kind of can only do that consistently when he is playing center, but you see what happens defensively when he's playing center. Like his offensive numbers look good right now because he's playing the five because Walker Kessler has been hurt, but he's doing it for the very worst defense in the NBA. So I, I think that's why it just makes it a difficult fit. And I'm starting to think, honestly, he just settles in as being more of like a bench big in like the Bobby Portis mold, yeah. which is, can be a valuable player. I just don't think any team is like shelling out anything of significance to get that guy. And and yeah, apart from that, I just, I don't know. Is there a market for Colin Sexton or Olinick or Talon Horton Tucker Jordan Clarkson, like I'm not, I'm not really sure, but I would say, yeah, that the core they have in place right now is Markkanen, who is awesome. Mm -hmm. Keontae George, who has shown some really intriguing flashes as a creator. Oche Agbaji, I think is probably part of that. Uh, Taylor Hendricks. We haven't really gotten a look at, at the NBA level at all, but they just drafted him in the lottery. So I'm assuming he's part of the long-term plans, it's not particularly inspiring if you're just looking at the players on the roster right now, which is why if we weren't including you know, the the assets, the draft assets that they have in the quiver, I probably would have had them not only behind
0: Houston, but probably behind Detroit as well. I might still uh, have them above Detroit because I think Kessler, like I, if you were just asking me right now, I, I might have Kessler as a more promising young player than Cade Cunningham. I don't care how crazy that sounds. Yeah, that sounds crazy to me. Like Dude, you could say Kestler's, that he's a more
1: impact he's a more impactful player right now, but in terms of upside, I think that's a crazy state. Like I,
0: No, I listen, just, I agree. No, I but I'm not talking about upside. I'm talking about what I actually believe the players will become. <sighs> so I'll
1: tell you where I stand on this, because I think in general, there are a lot of people who will say a center who can protect the rim. Kessler was fantastic at that as a rookie. Like showed a ton of promise as a as a defensive center and then also be like a good offensive finisher. You know whether that's just being in the dunker spot as a cutter, as a roll man, whatever. Guys who can do that, rim running, rim protecting, but don't really have anything else in their skill set. Not shooting, not passing, not necessarily the most versatile defense, although maybe Walker Kessler can become a versatile defender. Moves his feet pretty well. A lot of people will say like that archetype is sort of a dime a dozen. And even if you don't find somebody, you know, you take it like Rudy Gobert on one end of the spectrum and like at the other end of the spectrum is like Dwight Powell. Even if there's like a distinction there in terms of quality, it's maybe not as much of a distinction as there should be if you're comparing like Rudy Gobert's $40 million salary to Dwight Powell's $10 million salary. And you shouldn't invest a lot in that type of player because you can just find somebody who can give you 70% of that production for way cheaper. I think I am like slightly more to the center on that where I think that the value of having a really quality like rim protecting, rim running center is greater than some people want to give it credit for. But I also see the ceiling on that type of player who doesn't really project to be any kind of shooter or passer down the road as being fairly limited. So, yeah, if you're talking about what they're going to become, I would not put Walker Kessler in the same stratosphere as Cade Cunningham.
0: But it's I comparing apples and oranges. Yeah, like, how do you, I agree. you know? No, I, I wouldn't put them in the same stratosphere in terms of overall talent and upside. But in terms of my faith in what each will become, if you ask me about, like, future impact on winning, uh, I'm not prepared to say Cade Cunningham's going to be that much more of a difference maker. I think that's more of a knock on Cade than his abilities. Yeah, I mean, that's
1: still crazy to me. I can't I can't get on board with that, but I just don't... Look, I, I'm not crazy about the young talent that the Jazz currently have, but they just have so, so much draft capital that it's hard to imagine them not adding to that core in a way that's going to put them above the Pistons and possibly even above the Rockets. So that's why I wound up having them fourth.
0: Yeah, I think... The Jazz will be fascinating to monitor this year and going forward more so by what those picks will turn into than what the uh, kind of rebuilding talent already there will be. Um, Okay, we got three teams left. I believe the three teams left are the Spurs, the Magic, and the Thunder. Yep. I just realized, though, if we're talking about rebuilding teams, we did technically forget the Blazers. So I'll just ask you quickly, where would you slot them if we're talking about this eight? I think above washington but behind detroit yeah um that's a huge whiff eh? To, to just forget about the blazers in this conversation that's yeah, fine we can talk about them on another show if anyone actually cares outside of portland right now but i i'm like we're not really forgetting about them now we're at we're talking about them right now this is now an eight team rebuilding squads ranking and i'd probably put them seventh i think they're ahead of Washington with obviously the draft capital now, in addition to guys like uh, Shaden Sharp and Scoot Henderson and stuff. But uh, I also think for, you know, even for everything I said about Detroit, Detroit has more, one, they just have more young talent. They've got more NBA proven young talent on some level than Portland has and uh, are obviously a little further along, quote unquote, (laughs) in their rebuild. So I'd sandwich them between Detroit and Washington.
1: Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, it doesn't help that Scoot has looked as choppy Oof. as he has early in his career, but yeah. Shaden Sharp has been very encouraging in year two. Also doesn't help that Robert Williams is just immediately injured after arriving there, which puts a damper on both his potential trade value and whatever projection you might have had for him as like a piece of this team moving forward. Like I know we talked about, I was Curious to see how often, if at all, they played him and Aiton together and what that looked like. But, uh, you know, we're not going to get a look at that this season. I don't know. I think we we got to give... Maybe that's why we just like didn't include them in the first place. I feel like we just have to give this like a year before we even have a understanding of what the young players on this team are. Because they are at the earliest possible point yeah. in their rebuilding cycle. Like they are... Earlier on in their rebuild than any of these other teams are. So I think that makes it really hard to gauge because again, you know, scoots only played a handful of games. I don't know that we can necessarily draw a ton in terms of his long-term projection from those small handful of games. And I just think it's like so raw right now that it almost doesn't even make sense to rank them against the rest of these teams.
0: I agree. Okay. So let's get to our top three. Magic number three?
1: I did. Yeah, I had the magic number three. Even though they've been way, way better than the Spurs this year. You know, Wemby alone pretty much put the Spurs second for me.
0: But I guess we can talk about the magic first. i I'm so You had them third as well? Yeah, I had them third and pretty comfortably there. Like, I think they are securely ahead of the teams we've already discussed. And if we're talking future upside, comfortably behind the two teams we've yet to discuss. Yeah, and I would just say, like, once they
1: find themselves a legit lead guard, either internally or externally, then it's like, okay, look out. That's easier said than done, right? So there's no guarantee that they're actually going to be able to do that. But it does feel to me like they are that piece away from being a real serious pain-in-the-ass type of team. I mean, they're already a pain-in-the-ass type of team, but I mean, like, a real threat. Right now, I would say... They remind me a little bit of last year's Thunder, not necessarily in like the composition of their roster or even their style of play, but more just in like their temperament and their moxie and their like relentlessness and their physicality because they just sort of keep coming at you, keep driving the ball, bullying you in the post. They lead the league in rim frequency by a lot. 41.3% of their shots come at the rim. And league average is 32.6%. Like, they are just lapping the field in rim volume right now. And they're also tops in free throw attempt rate. So that just right there gives you a sense of what it's like to play against this team. They're a bruising team. They don't shoot the ball especially well, but they can beat you up inside. And also, their defense is, like, legit. Obviously, it's like there's just a ton of size on the floor. They're very active, very physical. They are tops in forcing turnovers. They're fifth in rim defense. And if we talk about sort of like these modern principles, like winning the possession battle, things like that, they're actually not winning the possession battle by a ton, but defensively, they're really good at just like limiting opponent shooting possessions. So if you look at why they're second in defense overall, they're actually only 15th in opponent effective field goal percentage, but they allow the second fewest opponent shooting possessions, or sorry, third behind the Knicks and the Heat, um, because they force so many turnovers and do such a good job cleaning their own glass. So I think, look at the pieces on this roster, like they're going to be a really good defense for a really long time. It's just about figuring out the offensive side of the ball.
0: Yeah. And I think that establishing a baseline of something close to like an elite level on one end of the court is a start for a rebuilding team, no matter where they are in the rebuild, because that is something to build with. And if you are elite on one end of the court, you're going to be at least a competitive team. And you can figure out the rest later, like on the other end. Right. And it's kind of like, you know, like when a team's like first coming up and they're trying to crack the playoff bubble and all that stuff, like the story is, for example, with the magic, their defense is great. And that should give them an opportunity to get in the play and maybe end their playoff drought. And then after a year or two of not winning in the playoffs, then all of a sudden for the exact same team, the story becomes, well, they got to figure out their offense to like win at the next level. But for where they are right now, this is fine. They're elite on one end of the court. They're figuring it out on the other end. I did laugh when I checked on the uh, Thanksgiving off day, some of the advanced metrics around the league and saw that they are 21st in offensive efficiency, which for anyone that listened to our bold predictions episode, one of my quote unquote bold predictions was that the Magic would finish top 20, and it might actually be 20th in offense, which this franchise has not done in more than a decade. I can't remember now if it was 11 years or 12 years or whatever it was, but it was more than a decade. They haven't finished top 20. I was like, this is the year. It might be 20th, but they'll be top 20. They're currently 21st. They're on the doorstep, man. They're right there. They're right there. But uh, no, look, I th- I think you know one thing we talked about, too, um, when we were on the Raptors show with Will Lou is that they're the inverse of the Pacers right now, right? On the defensive end. But something we both mentioned is that we also have more faith in their offense than the Pacers defense, because there are some shot creators here and there's like a path towards something. And they have the type of guys that can create a shot for themselves, make a tough bucket, even from the areas of the court that good defenses want you to shoot from. So I I have some faith in their offense there. Um, They're 10 and five right now. And like, to be honest, like, Franz hasn't even hit his stride yet this year. Like, he's been okay, but he hasn't been anywhere near as good as he was even last year, or let alone what people thought he could be this year. And I still think he will hit that stride. And when he does, this team can just be even better. So between how good they already are, the baseline they've established on the defensive end, the faith I have in some of the shot creation going forward, and how much better some of these young players can get, there's no reason not to be really encouraged about where this thing is going. And yeah, if it wasn't for a real outlier in OKC and a a once-in-a-generation talent kind of propping everything up in San Antonio. This is the type of team that some years would be like the most promising rebuilding team in the league. Yeah, and to your point about Franz, I I also
1: think Paolo, like neither of those guys has been quite as good as I expected them to be this season. And maybe that's because my expectations were a little bit too high for those guys. But like, I think they've been good, not great. And the fact that that like they haven't been especially good, and the magic are ten and five anyway, and the fact that uh, Wendell Carter Jr. has played five games, that's really encouraging. and so you know like first of all, Goga Batadze has done a really nice job filling in for Carter Jr. I don't know like if he is part of the long term plans there, but like to just get that guy basically off the scrap heap after he was was he waived? by the Pacers, or I don't know, even remember how he found his way to Orlando, but I don't think they gave anything up to get him. And he has continued to hold down the fort defensively. Like He's nowhere on the level of, of Carter offensively, but defensively he's been excellent. And man, Jalen Suggs, holy moly, just an unbelievable physical, strong-handed defensive perimeter player. Who is bringing a ridiculous level of energy and activity at that end every single night? I'm starting to figure out some things offensively too, I think.
0: Yeah, he's a dog, and I mean that in the most complimentary way possible. I think that term gets thrown around a lot in in sports where you like watch a guy have a great effort two nights in a row and you give it to him. But no, like yeah, Jalen Suggs legitimately is a competitive dog. And I think that's always a good place to start from. I mean, especially on the defensive yeah. end, but in general, like that's so uh, uh, yeah, let me ask you, actually. Because I would say, based on what I've seen
1: from him this season, that I would put Suggs, you know, obviously not on the same tier, but, like, with Franz and Paolo as part of the core, like, the young core for the Magic moving forward. Who else are you putting in that group right now?
0: Yeah, I, no, I, I think that's... Uh, like, would you put Mo, who I think is, like, a solid player, but I'm not... like I wouldn't put him as part of the core. He's been good. Yeah. I think Anthony Black is one yeah, like I mean he's played you know a month in the league but he's looked pretty good.
1: Man, he's again defensively. Yeah um like his size at his position is just ridiculous and he's a good decision maker, I think offensively, despite the fact that the lack of shooting right now is gonna be an impediment to that and especially when you plop him into an environment with without a ton of shooting around him, uh, that makes it difficult but You know, he's kind of able to like get in the post and see over the defense and make good passes and good reads. And I I really like what I've seen from him defensively. So I would maybe put him in that group. I I don't know if Jonathan Isaac's part of that group. And like right now, he's on a whether he's on a minutes restriction or they just feel like playing him, you know, 15 minutes a game is what's best for the team. This dude is averaging 6.2 stocks per 36 minutes, 2.6 steals and 3.6 blocks per 36. His defense is as ridiculous as it was before he suffered all these injuries, which is to say very ridiculous. I don't know where he fits into this at all, but like, that's that's what's going to be interesting is like seeing which of these talented but flawed young players kind of wind up uh, actually being part of the next great Magic team. And I think similar to like with Detroit, where they have all these big man projects and you don't know... Which of them are going to stick? I feel the same way about Orlando's guards. You know, the between Cole Suggs, Cole Anthony, who I really like as a player, just because he competes his as ass off at both ends. Um, Folks, I don't, I don't know how that shakes out. What do you think?
0: Like, wh- which of those guards sticks around? Uh, well, listen, Cole Anthony literally just got the new, like the new team friendly ish extension that I think runs through twenty six, if I'm not mistaken. And I think gives them some offensive creation from the guard position that really helps unclog their offense. And I think whether you're talking short-term right now, if they're trying to do something this season or as they build this thing out, I think that is important. So I might lean Anthony right now just contractually and skill-wise. But, you know, Fultz has given them some good stuff and has really developed into a solid enough player in his time in Orlando Gonna make a contract decision on him though this year. I, I would say due to a variety of factors, I would probably slot Anthony ahead of Fultz on there. Yeah, I mean they've they've got a lot of guys here, like you know Jet Howard here. I haven't really watched him yet. I mean there's there's a lot of young guys here, but unlike in the Pistons' case, it's you know a lot of young talent that is actually progressing and starting to coalesce into a winning team.
1: Yeah, and I think if they can't find that lead guard solution internally, then they are definitely a candidate for a consolidation trade at some point in time. They don't have the surplus draft assets, but they have, I think the player or prospect equity. They could maybe get them in some conversations for the lead guard of the future. So, and and they've been like linked to those types of players. Like they were linked to Fred Van Vliet, right? For obvious reasons. Like they need, They need some shooting at the guard position. And, um, you know, even somebody like Fred, who's like a sub all-star at this point, I think could really make a difference for a backcourt that needs somebody like that. You know, it doesn't have to be a superstar type of player necessarily that's getting them to that next level. It could just be somebody like a Van Vliet
0: who suddenly comes in and makes all of the other pieces make a whole lot more sense. All right. A team that might not make a lot of sense right now, but has the franchise tent pool that, you know, as I mentioned with like, for example, like not sure Kate Cunningham is this, the type of franchise tent pool where you can just plug them in and figure out the rest later. And that's the Spurs, who, from a win loss perspective, are still not great, probably a little behind where some people thought they could be this year in terms of like immediately getting back into the thick of things, maybe in the play on play in race. But again, this is a feeling out year for them. I think figuring out who and what fits around Victor Womanyama, letting him spread his wings a little bit in terms of like just early thoughts on what Wemby's looked like through a month of his NBA career. I think, the offense is maybe more of a work in progress than I thought it would be to start a lot of turnover issues, which are common for young players who get, especially young players who get thrown into the fire immediately as a high usage primary offensive guy. Like when he has a 30 plus usage rate defensively, I mean, we see the obvious ability and the glimpses of what should be one of the best defensive players in the league for a long time. But we also see, you know, stretches of youthfulness where, he is maybe a little over-eager when it comes to trying to make a play and compromising his team defense a bit. Again, a little easier to do that when you're as big as he is and, and you can make up for it in other ways. But they're still a train wreck defensively. They're a train wreck on both yeah. ends. They have by far the worst net rating in the league. Uh, your overall thoughts or impressions on where, where the Spurs are now, what Wemby's looked like to you through a month, and also where they're going. Like, does any of this really matter outside of Wemby? Yeah,
1: I mean, it does because they're trying to figure out which of these pieces are going to work around Wemby and who's going to be here in the future. So I think it matters. I don't know how much to actually take away from it, but I do think, you know, look, there there are some areas offensively that Wemby obviously needs to polish up, but I think a lot of his struggles do come down to the offensive environment where, especially when they're trying to do the point Sohan thing, they're just aren't other guys on the floor who are capable of delivering him the ball. I think they, they could do more to try and like get him the ball on the move, get him stuff going to the rim rather than it's like a few too many mid post isos for me. And they almost always just wind up turning into like step back 18 footers that he's not hitting at a particularly high clip right now. But part of the problem too is like, okay, it's one thing when he's playing the four next to Collins, and, like, the opposing team is obviously going to stick their center on Collins, and they're going to stick, like, a power forward or a big wing on Wemby. And I think he's struggling with that a little bit right now because he can shoot over those guys. But right now, that feels almost like the only thing that he can do. Like, he's not really able to drive around those guys. And, like, because of the, the higher center of gravity, it's just, like, hard for him to actually move them to get himself closer to the basket. When he's matched up against centers, it looks completely different. You know, there's like, there's a bunch of plays that are stuck in my head, but one play that is like seared into my brain is from that that breakout game against Phoenix where he caught the ball on the block against Drew Eubanks, spun baseline to get away from him. And Eubanks actually like did a pretty good job of staying with him to the point that Wemby was kind of like pinned on the baseline under the basket. And he jumped, I'm telling you, from outside of the paint and finished a reverse layup on the other side of the basket. Those are the kind of things that he can do that just make you say, okay, like eventually this guy's going to be completely unstoppable. But right now, whether it's because he's on the floor with Collins or even when he's playing the five and Collins is on the bench, if Sohan's out there, usually teams are sticking their centers on Sohan and still putting a wing on Wemby. So I think figuring out how to deal with those cross matches is going to be a big part of it, you know, without just like trying to shoot over them every time. Maybe he gets to a point where he's such a good shooter that that no longer becomes a viable proposition. But right now it's very viable proposition for the defense and they're going to keep doing it until he proves that they can't anymore. And then you mentioned about like him sort of like trying to make these spectacular plays defensively. I I would like to see him tone some of that down. Like there are, there are a few times where there's literally somebody like covering the ball in, in position to like contest a shot. And he's like, no joke, 15 feet away and he's lunging for like a no hope contest. I understand he's got a crazy enough wingspan that he can jump from that far away and still like he's not going to block the shot, but maybe still impact it a little bit. But when he does that, he's just conceding rebounding position. Like he does that entirely too much for my liking right now, but that'll, that'll come with time. Like there's nothing that I've looked at and been like, Oh, that feels like a red flag for what he's going to be in the future. Defensively. He's still a a massive rim deterrent. Like guys are just like spooked to attack when he's anywhere in the vicinity. And when he's zoning up the weak side, it's like the amount of space that he can cover while doing that is just absurd. So I'm not worried about that at all in terms of like the, the surrounding pieces. I don't know. What is there? You know, like, who's going to be here? Like, Vassell, well,
0: probably. They just gave Vassell that deal. I mean, obviously. He got that know, big extension. That's no guarantee that exactly. he's going to be Exactly. I was going to say, obviously, that doesn't piece, mean that. It's the same thing, like, when we were talking about the Magic. Like, Cole Anthony just getting that new deal doesn't mean he's for sure part of the... Yeah. Uh, you know, Vassell got match. a much bigger deal than right. Cole Anthony. But yeah, it's not a team-friendly deal. It's the, you know, um, Calvin Well, I mean, Johnson. it could be.
1: Like, I, I, I think... Vassell can and probably will be a good complementary piece long-term. Like, his shooting has already come a very long way. He's only 23. He's got defensive upside. So I think as, like, ultimately what you want to be, like, a tertiary piece there, he makes sense. It seems like they're invested in Sohan being part of this, and they're trying to figure out what he can do. I I have no clue what he is. Like, I I just—I don't know how to judge— because of the role that they're playing him in, because I don't think he's quite lived up to his billing defensively yet, and because offensively, what's being asked of him is not something he's really done before and not something he looks capable of right now. But they're using this as a year to experiment, and so, you know, we'll see.
0: And I think that's fine, that they are using... like That's what I was saying, that they are using this as an experiment year.
1: Yeah, I think it's fine. I also... I don't know. I would like to see them maybe scale back on the experimentation a little bit just to see like, you know, what does this actually look like? I I don't know. I think building out that sample would be beneficial too. But this is a a development year where losing games and positioning themselves to get another high draft pick is not the worst thing in the world. So sure, fine. Um, I think Malachi Branham's a guy who could be there. Like he's got some offensive juice has a solid mid range game, a really nice floater game, but a bit of a mess defensively whole teams, a mess defensively. And then, and then like Keldon Johnson is the one that is, I I was going to say most interesting to me, but it just feels to me like he's not going to be part of this. Yeah. Like he's made some progress as a playmaker, but I think for the most part, he's still got real tunnel vision issues. And as much as like, he actually has a pretty good handle. He's very strong his his driving game has always been a big part of what he does offensively. The lack of progress defensively has been really frustrating for me. Like, he just doesn't have great footwork, and he's not really laterally explosive in the way that he is vertically explosive. He doesn't have good help instincts. And he just hasn't progressed in that area, basically, since he entered the league. And that's where I'm, like... I, maybe this is just a change of scenery, guy. Like, I don't know that he makes sense
0: as a long term piece. So he's got I, that this is declining, where I'm co- sorry, he's got that um declining contract structure too, where it's like 19 million next year, but the two years after that are like 17, 5, 17. So pretty movable contract, especially in this I, yeah, he he makes all kinds of sense to me as like yeah. a trade piece. You know? Yeah. I guess
1: my point is like they're second for me because Wemby looks like a transformational talent. And they do have some spicy surplus draft assets stowed away. Uh, they're probably going to get the Raps first rounder this year. Uh, then they get the Hawks first rounder in 2025. They have a Hornets pick that's lottery protected the next two years and then uh, converts to two seconds. So maybe that's just two seconds. Probably it's just two seconds. But then they're they're going to get a Bulls first probably at some point, although there's some protections on that. And like at this rate, maybe they won't. <laughs> um. And then another Hawks pick in 2027, uh, a Celtics swap in 2028, an unprotected Mavs swap in 2030. All of those are going to help, I think, build this out around Wemby in the future. But right now, I think it's hard to see what is this even going to look like three, four, five years down the road? I have no idea. Yeah, me neither.
0: I do know that Greg Popovich should uh, let paying fans boo or not boo if they want to going forward as this rebuild continues. All right. You want to talk thunder?
1: Do we have, I mean, like they're, Look, I think there a no brainer number one here. I didn't really plan to talk about them too much because we've talked about no, them a bunch on this show already, but I'll just say, I mean, they're to me like a fringe contender right now. They're 11 and four. They are top 10 on both sides of the ball. Like
0: close to being top five on both sides of the ball. It's absolutely ridiculous with a player who's been after being all nba first team last season has looked like a number two or three player in the league to start this season like he's been yeah man shay sane as unstoppable as ever as a one-on-one scorer
1: but i think he's gotten better as a playmaker and he's really leveling up on defense like i actually think his big leap defensively came last year but he's been even better than that this year to the point that like I think he's genuinely been all defense caliber so far. And he's 25 years old. Like, this is a dude you can build a championship team around. Right. And the Thunder are on that track. You know, the, the stuff that's going on with Josh Giddy right now, credibly accused of statutory rape, like something that needs to be taken extremely seriously. And even if Josh Giddy never plays another game for the Thunder, even if they just cut him today and get nothing in return, which you know, I'm cynical enough to know is not going to happen. But even if it did, this is still the team with the brightest future in the league.
0: By far.
1: Chet Holmgren, 21 years old. And oh my God, the offensive polish on that kid already. And the defensive impact that he's making already. It is scary to think about how good he can be. Jalen Williams, 22. Kaysen Wallace is 20. And he's looked awesome so far. Isaiah Joe, like, I don't know, Dude. he's 24, like, he, it didn't look like he was going to be a core piece, but he might be. Like, he's one of the best movement shooters in the league, and he can really defend, and they've got a billion first-round picks in the quiver, like, it's, uh...
0: Yeah, they are very much looking the part of their record right now, which is an 11-4, but like you mentioned, almost, you know, top five marks on both ends of the court, a path to being elite on both ends of the court. They have a guy... Who is already an all NBA first teamer at 25 years old and looks like a, you know, at this point, almost like a perennial MVP candidate. And they have a rookie who, in his own right, could be a generational prospect. And that's before talking about all the draft capital or Jalen Williams. Like, it's there's so much here, it's ridiculous. And they're already really damn good. Poku's still 21. Let's go. Let's go. (laughs) No, he's not. He's like, is he actually? No, he's not. He's 21. 21. Yeah. Jesus Christ. Yeah. I feel so, like it, it. that seems... Keep absurd. that candle burning, Cash. Yeah, I was going to say that seems absurd because was he 15 when I first started talking about it? I'm like, Jesus. <laughs> um, all right. Anyway, yeah, I, I think that's a very easy way to end our uh, eight team rebuilding teams rankings. We didn't talk Nets. We both kind of agreed off air. They're not really... Like, yes, they traded multiple stars recently and they're like in the process of figuring out their next steps. But I, I, I mean, I guess you could make some people might classify them as rebuilding. I don't think they quite fit the model of the other teams we were talking about. We didn't talk Pacers because one, we talked about them a lot. I you know, spent 20 minutes on them last week talking about their offense and, and Tyrese Halliburton. And even them, I think they're somewhat out of the rebuilding phase, or I guess we'll see. But that's about it. One thing I did forget to mention uh, just quickly when we were mentioning the Blazers was, I don't know if you caught it, but like Devin Booker, even though he's no longer DeAndre Ayton's teammate, still just trying to encourage DeAndre Ayton to try hard more often as an NBA player. Not sure if you saw his uh, post-game quote after the Suns and Blazers matched up this week. I didn't watch the game, but I saw
1: what Booker said. And look, I from what I've watched of Portland this year, I know like the issues with Ayton have been not only have they persisted but some of them have been exacerbated just like the shying away from contact and like his free throw rate has gotten to absolutely comical levels um let me pull this up right now actually because it's truly insane how few how how few free throws he shot this year he has taken nine free throws in 14 games and his usage rate is the lowest of his career. Like any notion that he was going to go to this rebuilding team and put up like 20 and 10 because there was nobody else to take all these shots has been, you know, we've been quickly disabused of that notion. But I should think his effort level on most nights has been pretty solid or most nights that I've watched him in terms of like his defensive effort and what he's done as a rebounder for a team that could conceivably be a complete train wreck defensively has actually been closer to middle of the pack on defense and i think he's a big part of that so i would just like you know i know there's a ton of Aiden hate out there and he's an easy guy to rip on but i'm gonna go in the other direction and
0: joe wolf on said deandre Aiton, you are correct when you say that you are dominating um <laughs> <laughs> all right I th- look we've gone Even for us, this is a long one. I think we can save a fan shout out for the next episode. I do real quick want to mention, because I don't want anyone to take it the wrong way. Like when I made that kind of pop joke a few minutes ago, I don't believe that just being a paying customer, by the way, gives you a right to say whatever you want to professional athletes because they're professional athletes. There's still obviously a modicum of respect that has to be in there. And there's a line that you should never cross. I'm just saying in this case, when it was literally just fans booing a guy that used to play for them and left in you know contentious circumstances like i think that's fine i don't think we have to get on our high horse about booing now greg popovich come on that's all i wanted to say so that that my words aren't misconstrued there but uh other than that we unless you have anything else to say no sir we will get out of here i will say goodbye to Wolfon and goodbye to our listeners until next week i'm just pound the rock